0: Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of New York Times and various other places. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hi. We have a very special episode this week all about making the world a better place. We have Mr. Bjorn Lomborg. Welcome, Bjorn. I can say hi or hey. <laughs> <laughs> you can say hi or hey. You can be you can be Danish or English. I think for this for this purpose you will be uh, English. Uh, Danish is a little bit rusty around these parts. Um, introduce yourself. Who are you? And tell me what is the book you have just published?
1: So my name is Bjorn Lombor. I'm Danish, as you uh, mentioned, uh, but I'll speak in English. I, uh, I run a think <laughs> tank called the Copenhagen Consensus, uh, where we bring together tons of the world's best economists, Uh, we work with seven Nobel laureates in economics to basically try and find out if you want to spend an extra dollar, where can you do the most good? Uh, We've done that for the world. We've done it for Bangladesh and many other uh, individual countries, Uh, but now we're doing it for the world again, but for a specific uh, purpose, the world has decided it's going to do all good things in the world called the sustainable development goals. We're not actually achieving it. So here is a book that suggests 12 amazing things that the world could do at very low cost they will deliver amazing benefits.
0: So we're going to talk about a few of those things, about the whole conceptual underpinning behind the book, a few of the different ways it can work and how it would work in practice, whether it would work in practice. It's all coming up on slate money. Let's start with the central concept of the book, which is basically, if you're a government or a philanthropist or anyone who wants to change the world, there is this very quantitative lens which you should use before doing anything, and you call it a benefit-cost relationship. Is, is that pretty much the, the very big overarching message of the, of the book?
1: It is. You just summarized uh, all, all my 300 pages. So b- benefit cost analysis. So fu- fundamentally, we focus on a lot of things in the world and there is a lot of issues. Uh, and we often tend to get sort of slightly derailed by, you know, the causes to have the cutest animals or the most crying babies or the groups with the best PR. Uh, and that all makes sense. But what we try to do is to say, well, actually, there's possibly a lot of fairly boring things that would have huge impact at very low cost. Shouldn't we know about that? So we're basically making, if you will, a price list for some of the best things you can do in the world.
0: Let's talk a little bit first about the concept of measuring what you call the sizes and the prices using the same measuring stick, which is dollars. Every idea in your book, even something like, we should switch to e-procurement or we should do more trade like is it comes with a price that like this is the cost of it in dollars and then it comes with a benefit in dollars and even if the benefit is you know kids get better education you you put a, a dollar price on that and i know that people can feel a bit uncomfortable with just saying like, how do you make all of these very incommensurate things commensurate by like reducing them all to dollars? Is that really possible?
1: Remember, we do this all the time. So when you go into a supermarket, you really do put into dollars very, very different things, not just apples and oranges, but you know, all the things you buy, they all have price tags on them. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about. Are, are, are we doing the right thing here? What economists try to do is to say, well, What's the cost? Well, typically, most of the cost is actually going to be dollars. If you want to get kids better education, you have to pay for, you know, more schools or better teachers or uh, better teaching equipment, that kind of thing. If you want to save people from tuberculosis, you need to pay for, uh, you know, the drugs and uh, have staff of medical uh, uh, people and all that stuff. That's sort of understandable. But the real issue and what I think you're aiming at is how do we measure the benefits in terms of dollars, because that's that's sort of obviously, that feels wrong, right? Because it's uh, children flourishing more, it's children knowing more, it's it's uh, people not dying. Those are obvious things that we shouldn't be putting into money. But remember, we do all the time. And let me just give you one example. Uh, so uh, when, when the uh, Department of Transportation in the US and pretty much everywhere else in the world decides we have this road, should we make it more safe? Should we make a middle divider or something? They essentially make a trade-off between saying, if we make it safer, it means fewer people will die in this road, but it also costs more money. And typically what they do, and this is not unsmart because they've also given this a lot of thought, right? They, They think if we can do it really cheaply and save a lot of people, it's a good idea. If we if it'll cost a lot of money and you can only save very few people, maybe we won't do it. It turns out that the US government consistently, not totally consistently, but reasonably consistently, decides to say, if we can save one human life for less than $10 million, we'll do it. If it costs much more than $10 million, we won't do it.
2: One thing I thought that was interesting in your book is you had these great charts um and you would chart all these problems that have improved you know in the rich world it, incredibly like um the incidence of infectious diseases or the literacy or education and i thought you know the the rich world didn't set out as the primary goal to solve any of these particular problems the rich world just got rich and the problems got solved and so nitpicking or well, not nitpicking but choosing based on this very complicated cost-benefit analysis which problems to go after maybe obfuscates what would be an easier solution or maybe a harder solution, which is for the developed world to get richer, because that's what's going to solve all these problems in a much bigger way more quickly. Like if you look at the numbers on China, right? China didn't set out to solve infectious disease or child wasting or anything like that. China decided to do more capitalism, and they got richer, and then a lot of these problems went away
1: so so you're absolutely right. i mean for for the developing world, for the poor part of the world, uh, if you get rich, you will solve many of these problems. That's yeah. absolutely true the The problem is it's not very obvious how do we go about getting richer now. You know you could say, well, everyone should do like China. That's clearly hard because do only like China. China managed to do that right now uh, so so it's not that that's not a good. Other idea, And we should certainly recognize the fact that if you get more economic growth, you lift out a lot of people from poverty. And that's one of the biggest problems in the world. So absolutely, we should be focused on that. We actually address that partly in the book with trade. We know that one of the things that made China rich is that they got to be the world's workshop. They basically got to trade a lot, and that's one of the ways that you get rich. You know, you don't have a, a, a tremendously high wage, but you actually have pretty well-educated people. You sell to the U.S. and everybody else. We pay them good money, and they get richer from it. That's a good idea, and we should make sure that more people get that opportunity. In the rich world, we've become sort of slightly disillusioned with uh, trade because it leads to the Rust Belt and all these other problems, and those are real issues. Uh, but we should still remember how good this is uh, for a lot of the uh, uh, poor part of the world.
0: So let me ask you the same question the other way around, which is you, you have a chapter at the beginning, which basically said we, you know, a few years ago had these wonderful things called the Millennium Development Goals. And a lot of them came very close to being met. Some of them actually were met. Um, and I think most of us will remember things like the um, Global Fund to fight you know, AIDS and other diseases in Africa. There was Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, also in Africa. Um, literacy rates, especially for girls in Africa, has have gone up enormously. Um the mortality rate for kids under five in most of sub-Saharan Africa has really plunged. There's been a lot of sort of humanitarian successes. And these are precisely the kind of things that you are saying we need more of, and you're trying to sort of quantify in this book. But like looking backwards, using the same methodology that you use in this book, you know, you would you would conclude as a result of these successes, the you know the fact that Africa was not wiped out by AIDS as everyone thought it would be in the early nineties, um, that Africa is now you know however many hundreds of billions of dollars richer as a result of what the Global Fund did. Um, have you done the sort of benefit-cost analysis on things that have actually worked in the past, on those kind of things, and have we managed to do incredible things in the past that we're just not singing loudly enough about?
1: Mm-hmm. So we've we've done a little bit of back-of-the-envelope uh, kind of argument on, on those things. Uh, I think the main reason why we haven't done it is because it's sort of, you know, it's intellectually interesting, but we're past that. Uh, we've done that. It doesn't actually help policy. But the main point here is, again, to say that that most of what we've done is is looking uh, ahead. And, and what you rightly point out is uh, we were very good at the Millennium Development Goals, which ran from 2000 to 2015, to say, let's do a very few specific, mostly really smart stuff. And we achieved a lot. But then, you know, the UN uh, said, oh, wow, this went really well. Let's do this again. Uh, But the problem was that these Millennium Development Goals literally were set by six guys in a back room in the UN. You know, Kofi Annan and five others. uh, And and the story is that they met uh, the the environment, uh, 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 the guy who ran the environment. Uh, agency uh, a couple of days before they were going to launch. And they were like, oh, we don't have any environment. So they put in an environment target as well, which was uh, then uh, 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 water and sanitation. And, you know, that's probably not the way you want to do global goals kind of thing. So this time around, they said, let's ask everyone what they think should be in these global goals. And not surprisingly, when you ask everyone, you get everything in there. Uh, they, we ended up with an enormous package of stuff. Uh, ranging from, uh, going from 2016 up to 2030, where we basically promised everything. We promised to fix hunger and malnutrition, sorry, hunger and poverty and uh, 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 war and corruption and climate change and uh, uh, jobs and and, uh, education and, you know, get urban, uh, more urban parks and and, uh, more sustainable tourism. You know, there's literally not anything in there that's not promising something for whatever field you're in. Uh, We promised everything to everyone. And so this year, 2023, the world is at halftime for the uh, SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, and we're nowhere near halfway. We're just basically failing. Even the Secretary General is now saying uh, we're far off track on on our promises. And so what we're trying to say is, look, if you're promising everything, you're not gonna get anything done. you have no priorities. Let's focus on some really simple smart stuff,
0: but they're, they're not that simple, Bjorn. I mean, like, I, I, I have a bunch of things I want to sort of respond to here, but like the first thing is, the, with the vast majority of your 12 simple things are the kind of things that really can and must, only be implemented by domestic governments in various developing countries. I think probably the malaria one is is the exception, um, but most of the rest of them, especially things like oh, we you know governments should move to e procurement, or we should implement more trade, or even stuff around education, you know, but perforce must wind up being done through government departments, through the political system, through whatever you know authoritarian or democratic you know system you have in any given country and it strikes me that that is never going to be simple and it's never going to be something you can just magically make happen with by writing a check
1: so look and this is very very important so what i mean by simple is this is something that we've actually demonstrated how to do in many different circumstances so let me take one example uh, uh which is education uh, we both say how you shouldn't do education. So there are lots of things where government spent enormous amounts of resources on education and gotten very trivial or no uh, output. For instance, Indonesia, uh, uh, famously in the early 2000s, uh, you know, very well-intentioned, decided they were going to spend twice as much money on education. So they hired a lot more teachers. They doubled the uh, the wage of each teacher, uh, and and because of the way it was it was uh, rolled out, it actually happened in different regions at different times. And so uh, you can make a, a, a pseudo randomized controlled trial study, and they did. Uh, and it's a very famous paper. It's called Double for Nothing. Uh, so basically, the Indonesians spent twice as much money. They have one of the lowest class size uh, class sizes in the world. And you could not measure the impact on uh, uh, educational outcome. Now, the teachers are much happier, which is great, but presumably not the main goal of, uh, of educational policy. So fundamentally, you can spend a lot of money and achieve nothing. So this is not what we should be doing.
3: Yeah. In your analysis, how do you weigh cost effectiveness against urgency and time sensitivity?
1: We don't. We only look at what is the cost- Typically, the cost is right now, but sometimes it'll be over a number of years. For instance, if you try to fix tuberculosis, it doesn't help just try to fix it one year. You actually need to fix it a lot of years before it sort of sticks. The same thing with many other infectious diseases. But most of the cost is right now. The benefits, depending on which kind of problem you're looking at, come right now. For instance, if you you give uh, immunization, uh, most of the kids that you immunize, will survive just that year when they get the immunization. Now, some of them will you know, dribble in 60 years later, but most of it is right now. Uh, unlike, for instance, education where you uh, teach the kids better now, but the benefits really only come in 10, 20, 30, you know, 50 years when they get into the employment market all the way till uh, they retire.
0: This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2%,
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW.
1: Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
0: If you want to hear our amazing Slate Plus bonus segment where we talk about land title and how it can create trillions of dollars of wealth around the world, become a Slate Plus member. There are no ads on Slate Podcasts. Not even this one. If you listen to slate plus you will be supporting the podcast slate plus helps keep this show going um, you'll be getting bonus segments not only on slate money but also slow burn Micus political gab fest working all manner of slate podcasts you will learn amazing drops of knowledge from bjorn lomborg and various other guests and you have unlimited reading on the slate website access to every article ever published and every advice column and you never hit the paywall so become a member at slate.com slash money plus that's slate.com slash money plus so this this raises one of the two big questions that i have about the whole like underpinning of the book which is it's based on on two numbers um One of them is the discount rate that you're talking about, and the other one is the um, value of a life year. Um, And it strikes me that where you end up with all of these 12 different chapters is incredibly, is very, very deeply a function of where you set those two numbers like in the appendix at the end of the book. Um, The fact that you're valuing a life Per year, um, results in a bunch of interventions for children and infants because yep. those lives are worth much more than if you save the life of a forty-year-old and half their life has gone already. So, um, you know, so so that's one thing you do, and then also because you actually mention this in the book, like there's this weird cutoff that if you um, if you prevent a stillbirth. That is considered much less beneficial than if you prevent a baby from dying, you know, at like one week, because that's not a life you, you know, saved. These kind of weird um, paradoxes. At one point, um, you mentioned that like saving children's lives is worth billions of dollars, but at the same time, if you get um, women to have fewer babies that's also worth billions of dollars and it's like well which one do you want do you want more babies? do you want more children or do you want fewer yes. children um so there's yep. like a lot of this just comes from like that one life year thing and then similarly on the on the discount rate thing you have a relatively high discount rate which means that you do wind up um pushing things like immunizations and you know uh bed nets which save lives relatively quickly at the expense of say, um, climate interventions that would take decades and decades to, to get moving?
1: If you set a very low discount rate, that is, you basically say the future is incredibly important, everything becomes much, much better deal, especially things that are far away. But remember, uh, and we've actually tried to get our researchers to do this, but it turns out that this is this is almost impossible to do. If If you start thinking about... Uh, uh, for instance, you know, p- people in the climate conversation will say, "But surely the very far off future, where climate policy will have a much greater impact, is hugely important as well." But remember, if if the future is hugely important, then helping people with malaria today not just means that these people will survive, but that their kids will be much better off because not only will they actually have a mom instead of not having a mom, uh, but they will also have much more opportunity to give them uh, capital support and give them education, and it will have huge impacts and possibly incredibly large impacts uh, in the far future. And then you very easily get to this very paradoxical uh, outcome that has also been remarked in, in the climate debate. If you put a very low discount rate, that is the future is incredibly important, the outcome becomes, you know what, all of us should just eat porridge and then leave all the rest of the money to future generations, which of course should also just eat porridge and leave all the money to future generations and so on, because the indefinite future is just way too important. And and there, I think the, the important point is just to recognize nobody actually does this. You know, we...
0: Typically, well, sorry, we, we know where that no. logic like en- ends up, beyond, because we saw the headlines. It Ends up with Sam Bankman-Fried trying to buy the island of Nauru <laughs> with his long-termism. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not like, sure <laughs> that's true, but <laughs> I, I,
1: get, I get the funny point. Uh, but but yeah, look, I, no, it, it ends up with us saying we care about the world, and and I think this is an important part. I, I love the fact that a lot of people really do want to help the world, and so we're willing to you know. Spend I don't know two three four five percent of our income to try to make the world better, but we're not willing to spend you know say fifty or seventy five or ninety seven point five percent, which is one famous climate outcome. Uh, we're not willing to spend that much money on the rest of the world. So what we do do is we try to say we're going to set aside. Uh, non-trivial, but not an enormous amount of, of money for the rest of the world. How do we best spend that? And that's the answer that we try to deliver.
2: The message of the book is like, here's how we can spend money to change the world. So it seems like it's like a guide for the richer countries and the richer people in the rich countries to give to the developing world. How much input has the developing world had on these ideas? Or How involved in they are saying, like, these are the problems we want solved. Because it it seems kind of... um,
0: Colonialist?
2: (laughs) Colonialist. Yeah, it seems colonialist, basically, to be like, this is what we think you should do. Because we want to feel better about having a lot of money and being better off than you.
1: I actually address that straight up front in the book. Uh, I, I say what we means, namely, that we means everyone every, every one of goodwill so it is philanthropists who want to do good it is developed uh, developed develop governments so the USAIDs of the world but it's also developing countries these are these are great investments for all three of them and we're trying to argue for all all of them so I've actually uh, uh, presented this in a lot of uh, developing countries we work with a lot of developing countries uh, uh, so all of these inputs into the sustainable development goals, which is what we take our starting point from, comes from uh, 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 basically uh, making sure that you have everybody's input, so both rich and poor countries. But what we're trying to do is then say, what does the uh, the period literature tell us? Where are the best deals? And those are presumably not something that matters whether you're rich or poor. This is simply about saying, where are the best deals in the poor half of the world. And this is true both for poor countries or for development agencies from the rich world. And so I'm trying to tell both. I'm actually trying to tell everyone, you know, this is where you get the biggest bang for your buck, whether you're a poor poor country government that wants to do good for its citizens, or whether you're a rich country that through development aid wants to do good in poor countries. I
2: just can't imagine philanthropists telling the United States government, these are the, I mean, I guess it happens a lot. These are the programs you must do. We know better than you. You know what I mean? It's
1: just- I mean, they they do that. (laughs) It's incredibly, I am not, and I hope I'm not coming across that way. I'm not saying we know better than you. What we are saying is that this is what the literature shows are some of the best deals available. Uh, you know, so we work with uh, the Indian government, uh, Niti Ayag, which is their uh, their central uh, think tank to uh, look at where you spend uh, resources. We've done the same thing for Bangladesh, for Ghana, for Malawi, uh, for a number of other countries, uh, including Uganda and Eswatini. Uh, we're, we're right now working with Tonga and the uh, South Pacific. We're, we're working with them all and saying, what does the literature say? And these typically period published uh, economic a- estimates of how much did uh, an intervention cost and how much good did it do? And then we try to advise them to say, here is what the evidence say. If you do this, the evidence seems to, suggest je- you're going to spend a lot of money and get no uh, 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 educational outcome. If you spend it on tablets, however, it costs much less and you get a huge uh, uh, outcome that is one of the reasons is not by any means the only one uh, that convinced the malawian government to uh, to actually say we want to get tablets into all of our primary schools which is you know i think great and they're working both with their own of, of funds, but also trying to get developed country funds, so both philanthropists and from USAID and others to actually fund this. So I think this is not this is not it's certainly not meant as colonial co- colonial or whatever that word is. Uh, but but it also that's not this is really just about what does the evidence say.
0: So let me ask you: when you go to these countries, um, how how much? inter-country differences there because you don't you 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 present most of the solutions in this book as basically if not one size fits all at least solutions that basically apply pretty much everywhere maybe you know in the case of malaria mostly just in africa but even so africa's an enormous continent um you know i'm thinking for instance like you go to india and i, I am aware that like right now there's a big debate over there building a big you know, water pipes everywhere. And everyone's saying, well, for a hundred million extra dollars, we can put inline chlorination into these water pipes and putting inline chlorination into these water pipes is going to save millions of lives. And it's going to be, is that like this one off like opportunity to do a lot of good for a relatively small amount of money, but this is not something that would necessarily read across to say Tonga. So how much difference is there between, you know, the, the paperback version of this book that people are reading after listening to State Money versus like the more sort of concrete recommendations that you that you give governments when you when you visit them on the ground.
1: So there there's a significant difference uh, uh, in in two things. So first of all, the book that we're talking about is sort of a, a conversation to the Sustainable Development Goals, which presumably is something that all countries in the government in the world have decided. This is the same. Uh, 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 same sort of cookie cutter that we're going to put down over every country in the world. Uh, so it's in that sort of spirit that I write. Here is some here are twelve amazing things that you could do. Yes, they're not all equal in all countries and yada yada. But we've tried to make a global estimate here, uh, which is not an unreasonable kind of conversation. But obviously, it changes when you go to an individual country. It changes in two ways. Partly, you know, all the setups uh, change. You know, some things, if you're outside of Africa, you don't have malaria, pretty much. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of other things, which obviously change the factual circumstances. Uh, but the second thing is, it also matters where your politics is. In every country, there are some things that you discuss a lot. So when we went to Ghana, it was, it was very much about uh, because the government had just won on uh, promising free uh, 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 secondary school uh, for kids. And that was the big thing, uh, and and so that was obviously one of those things that we had to analyze. And how do you do that? And turn out that there was way too few teachers and too little schools. And you know, uh, and how do you do that? All that kind of stuff. Uh, 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 with India, we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about because this has been one of uh, Modi's big things uh, to get clean drinking water and sanitation. And I actually uh, briefly allude to it in the book because I say that it turned out. Uh, uh, they didn't like that very much, that this is not the best investment. It's a pretty good investment, but it's not by any means the best investment. Uh, and, you know, I think I think you need to say that. One of the things that India loves to say is we built all these toilets and that's great. Uh, but unless you actually keep them uh, clean every day, people don't use them one of the things that we've tried to do with this book is simply to show people there are these 12 amazing, well, it'd be amazing if it was really just 12, right? I mean, but roughly 12 amazing things in the world. How about we start doing some of those? I'm, I'm, I would love everybody to do all 12, but you know, I'd be happy if we can just do three or four of them.
3: So on a superficial level, a lot of your argument sounds a lot like what effective altruists argue for. Uh, but they tend to have a long-termist bias. How would you distinguish between the way you prioritize and the way they think about it?
1: Effective altruism is fundamentally the exact right idea is to say, I want to do good in the world and I want to do it effectively. That's exactly where we agree. I think they tend to... Like more interesting things, they also go a little bit out more in the sort of philosophical area. And as you point out, uh, they very often go for very, very long-term thinking. One of their big things is that uh, that uh, if humanity uh, is, is worth preserving and this is our long-term future, nothing else really matters. I love reading them. I love talking to them. But I think it's a totally sort of detached from what most people think, which is really the next year is incredibly important the next four years are incredibly important we work with haiti uh and uh as as one of the governments that we work with when it still only didn't work but not totally fell apart as it has now um and uh and and you know honestly um nobody in haiti really cared about stuff that happened four years from now it was just that and and you know i think the development also showed that they were right uh you know you care about making stuff work next
0: year let me ask you finally just about um how individuals play into this because a lot of what you're talking about is things that are enacted either by like the health ministry or the education ministry or something like that in um a government somewhere or at the you know, one step removed where you have a big powerful Western agency like USAID that is able to go into those ministries and twist arms and say like, we're going to write you this check just as long as you spend this money on this thing. And they can earmark the money and they can shepherd it along and they can bring it out in tranches and make sure it's going to where it's intended to go. Or at least in theory, that's how it works. Um, you know, me as a guy writing a, you know, hundred dollar check, like I have no ability to talk to the Bangladeshi education minister how do i uh what's the best way for like a little old me to make a difference and like in my mind it really all it's it's just malaria but maybe i'm wrong about that
1: the big thing I think is to say, look, you're clearly a person of goodwill. You want to help the world. Presumably, you also, you know, care about the rest of the world. You've certainly read the book, so you know, you, you now you want to do something. I think it's about getting that message out because one of the things that I find constantly, so when you go talk to USAID, for instance. Um, They're incredibly encumbered by the fact that a lot of Congress people have put all kinds of guardrails in. No, you cannot spend it here. You must spend it this way. And honestly, it it feels like a lot of people have have just put up these regulations because they met with someone who said that you should do this or you shouldn't do that. Uh, And and so help the USID to actually focus more on the smartest things. And likewise, ask, uh, you know, make it, Make it not okay to just do something that sounds good, but actually do something that that does good. Uh, a lot of the money that we spend, I, I, I sort of sl- semi facetiously make this argument: a lot of money in in the uh, in the development sphere and, and philanthropy sphere goes into you know picking up straws in the uh, in the Pacific Ocean, that kind of you know plastic straw, and clearly that's bad. But you know in the big scheme of things probably not the main issue if you care about these things about what 80 90 percent of all plastic garbage in the ocean comes from fishery equipment maybe we should be more concerned about that if we actually you know want to care about it but 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 it's also like, as long as you know uh, 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 at least the half a dozen uh, million kids die each year from easily curable infectious disease and maybe that's our uh, uh, a slightly bigger issue and so let's make sure that we don't just you know applaud everybody who spends money but let's also sort of gently push them what's spending it really effectively in some ways that'll actually have a huge impact so I, I think that's this is not a great answer because there is no No, great it, answer, no I think this but, is you know,
0: this is exactly the answer that I that I was kind of coming to myself, which is basically the answer that it's all po- it's all political. The the ability that I have as a U.S. citizen is basically the ability that I have to influence Congress, which in turn can influence USAID and like you know work out how much money we're spending on foreign aid, whether we do things like you know PEPFAR and Gavi and the Global Fund. Um, the and and for me, you know, it's political one layer on as well, that the influence that France or the Netherlands or Norway has on Malawi or Eswatini or Tonga is, again, going to be mostly political. And, the, you know, you get to twist arms and maybe France goes up to, you know, Botswana and says, you should put tablets in schools and it will provide all the money just as long as the tablets are made by a french company you know this is the kind of thing that always winds up happening and and it's my my sort of big picture here is it's politics all the way down and especially when you know you're enumerating the costs so assiduously in dollars i think we kind of lose track of the fact that the real obstacle here is not actually financial it's inevitably political both at the developing country level and at the developed country level
2: yeah that's what i was trying to say before we're talking about china like china has a strong autocratic government that's able to implement policies to enrich itself to make the lives of its citizens better if a country has a strong government that's if not well-resourced but resourced and efficient a lot of these problems can be solved within that country and that local government, right? It is a political and government issue more than a money. Where do you spend it? Issue.
1: I, I think you're saying slightly different things, Felix and Emily, because I, I I feel like yes, if if the countries are richer, they can fix a lot more. Uh, but Felix, if they point, have a your, strong your, government, your, your, your argument is more that we. It's not actually about allocating more money; it's just about politics. I think. I think there's certainly an argument for partly that politics needs to be clear and more honest about what it is that they're trying to achieve. And part of what we can do is to make sure that we held them accountable, that, you know, when when governments say, oh, but you need to buy French tablets, we actually say, What? But the, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not even sure there is a, Franc- a French tablet, but it's probably not effective. So, uh, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but, you know, uh, but, you know, that we actually say, well, don't we want to do the most effective stuff first? But there's still a lot of money that is not allocated that could go to these amazing things and where we can help. And that's basically what this book is about. Look, if I had the solution, you know, if I just wrote the book, and now we have the blueprint, and and all we need to do is to come up with 35 billion dollars, and we're all good to go. That would be wonderful, but that probably be too easy. But I do think we're in some way also lacking the blueprint. And the good example of that, of course, is the world decided on these sustainable development goals. We decided to promise everything to everyone, and then we end up with just you know nice sounding. Uh, 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 sort of canned responses, but not really what will make the world a better place. And so I'm trying to sort of inject a little bit of this.
0: Yeah, no, I definitely f- I feel you on that one, that the, the number of you know impact investors who I talk to, who are like, I judge myself by like, is this company I'm funding going to help the Sustainable Development Goals? It's like every single country company in the world, you can find an SDG somehow that they're yes. helping. Um, but yes, we should um, move on and have a numbers round, I think. Elizabeth, do you have a number this week?
3: Uh, yeah, my number is 44, and that's dollars. And this is what you would pay for three ounces of sardines at a new store in Times Square called The Fantastic <laughs> World the Portuguese of the Portuguese Sardines. Sardine. Yes.
2: What? Wait, say that again. (laughs)
0: $44 can of sardines in Times Square. People, you know you want to do it because you know why they do it? They have literally taken out every single bone from inside the sardines so that you don't have to taste the bones, which are perfectly fine to taste.
2: Uh, I'm sorry, they made a sardine store? A a sardine (laughs) store in Times Square? They only
3: sell sardines, and it's it's a two-story store, and they have 30 different kinds of sardines. And then they have this gimmicky thing where they put.
0: <laughs> can I just jump in and say I've been to this store in in Lisbon Airport, and it is a great store, and I'm a massive fan of canned fish in general, and canned sardines in particular, and I'm all in favor of canned sardines. But yeah, the forty-four don't don't eat the forty-four dollar can. That's they put like gold. That flake one in comes it. in a yeah, it comes in
3: yeah. a, a a can shaped like a gold ingot. So.
2: And what's the name of the story again? The fantastic, the fantastic sardine
3: world? world of the Portuguese sardine.
0: Emily is not convinced about this. I'm, I'm pretty I sure I know what the not to get Emily for her birthday.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to eat a forty-four dollar can of sardines. I don't think you know because it was too expensive.
0: It. You would want to save it for special. Yeah,
2: occasion. what's a good occasion? The, what is a special sardine occasion? I don't even know.
0: Emily, you have this wonderful look on your face. So I'm just going to force you to change the subject. What is your number? <laughs>
2: My number is 24, as in August 24th, which, and this is from a study, you guys, is (laughs) the day of the year that people are most likely to call in sick. And this was published in Bloomberg, so I know it's true and factual. (laughs) August 24th is the number one day to call in sick and it comes from a study from a company that you know manages employee absences and medical leaves and they looked at when people take sick days and august 24th which was just a couple of days ago um and the intrigue is they don't say what the why august 24th is the day the second most popular day is the day after the super bowl bjorn that's a big football big <laughs> sports game in the united states (laughs) um so that one we understand like people watch it they go to bed late whatever but i don't why august 24th so if people have ideas please write in to slate money at slate.com and tell us your theories
0: I, i i just want someone to do the um the same survey but do it in australia or new zealand or somewhere and if it's January twenty-fourth will be like, okay, now we're getting we're getting somewhere here. But if it turns Ooh. out to be you know, April the 16th or something, then you're like, okay, it's not what we think.
2: Yeah, we need further research. Can your can your team? We, you we are, need to internationalize the
0: Copenhagen consensus. Can can yes, like can, this is can gonna can be our one to the most in important things beyond the most important we ask things to be yes, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna stick with something foodie. Um, my number is 80 million which is the number of dollars that Subway recently spent. Subway, Bjorn, again, this is something you won't know if you haven't been spending a lot of time in America, is uh, is, is like billion. the anti-tin sardines. It's, it's like it's fast food sandwich thing, which is incredibly popular. Um, there are... 20,810 U.S. locations. It has been owned by the same two families basically since it was founded, and now it is to sale because the two founders have both died, and a bunch of private equity companies are lining up to buy it. And they've tried to... it It went to a sort of fallow patch a few years back, and they brought in a new CEO. One of the things that the new CEO did was he put meat slices in every location for the first time. And this cost... $80 million. And because I am considerate, I did this maths for you. That works out at $3,844 per location to install a meat slicer. And I think, I mean, obviously that's worth it, right?
2: That's too much. (laughs) That can't, it can't cost that much to buy a meat slicer. And what do you mean install it? Don't you just like
0: Put on the counter. Put it. Put it on Start the counter. Slicing. I mean, for me, you I just had this vision of like, her. how long so does some, a meat slicer yeah, last?
3: <laughs> True. Some there.
0: some guy in like Sheboygan somewhere who runs a meat slicer factory gets a phone call one morning saying like I'd, I'd like to order twenty thousand eight hundred and ten meat slices, please. And he's like, <laughs> this is this is the phone call I have been waiting my whole life for.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, wow. But anyway, Bjorn, bring us home. What is your number?
1: Uh, I'm not surprisingly going to pick something uh, which we've just talked about. So my number is 52. uh, And it's basically the bang for the buck for all these 12 things that we're talking about. Uh, So we're talking about, you know, basically when we try to fix tuberculosis, maternal, newborn health, malaria, nutrition, chronic diseases, the whole shebang that we've been talking about, it'll cost about $35 billion a a year, but it'll save 4.2 million lives each and every year. And it will generate $1.1 trillion in, in higher economic benefits for the poor part of the world. So that's a, a part of the answer to you, Emily, and on how you actually get people richer. If you take all of that into account, it ends up to being about $2.1 trillion. Or for every dollar spent, you've done $52 worth of good. That's one of the best things that we could possibly do in the world. So yeah, let's
2: do that's it. That's less money than than Elon spent on Twitter, right? Didn't he spend 40-something then? Yes.
0: He spent $44 billion dollars on Twitter. <laughs> yes,
3: <laughs> he could have yes. spent so, $35 so billion he, in... That's about how much value he's destroyed
0: the Twitter. So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's destroyed over a trillion dollars of value he could have spent on Bjorn's 12 on, things. On
1: our thing too.
0: I think I'm right in saying that it's less than the annual budget of the New York City Schools Department.
1: Yeah.
0: And, so that and what that goes to show,
1: show is just, you know, Doing really smart stuff can be very very cheap, uh, and you know, it'll be fantastically transformational. So again, all the things that we've discussed, and yes, this is not easy, and certainly it, it seems unlikely that you can just use this fifty-two number, a little bit like the forty-two number from, from uh, what's his name, Douglas. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, Hitch- yeah Douglas the
1: Adams. To the you, yeah, you can't just you know put out one number and say, oh, that explains the whole world but it does give you a great sort of uh, 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 base from which to have this discussion.
0: With that, Bjorn Lomborg, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been brilliant it's having been you here. Wonderful. Um, thanks to everyone for, uh, <laughs> for, for, for listening. Thanks for writing in, slatemoneyofslate.com. Thanks to Patrick Bork for producing. And we'll be back next week with more sleep money.